welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. The global pandemic continues to disrupt business and to create new security threats. Phishing, social engineering and ransomware are all exploiting concerns about the virus to trick employees into handing over their credentials. And that's only part of the story. The rush to deploy new systems and to move people en masse to home working has created new security whole. Already, according to Verizon's Internet Data Breach Investigations report, one in four breaches were down to human error. And that has increased. In the second of our series on the pandemic and its impact on cybersecurity, we look at the research data to see how bad actors are using COVID to their advantage and ask what businesses can do to protect themselves and their data. Our guest this episode is Philip Larby, Managing Principal for Cyber Intelligence and Instant Response at Verizon. He argues that to understand where we are now and how risks might develop, we need to start by looking at the security situation before the pandemic. Very fortunately, you know, we, we had the, uh, the, the data breach incident report that came out in, in May, but it very much reflected the landscape as it was really before the pandemic took, you know, took effect. So, you know, we had the benefit of, of really what the trends were, the underlying foundations and trends were right up to the point where, um, where, the, where the pandemic then kicked in. So, so really then it's looking at, um, you know, obviously a much more limited data set than, than, than the full DBIR, but actually then beginning to identify those differences um, and, and begin to try to actually understand, you know, what, what are those differences? What, why are they different? What are they trying to achieve? So what are, you, what are you picking up out there? And are you getting any specific feedback from security teams that there is an increase in bad actors looking for a way in that COVID might have made easier for them? No question. Um, the, the type of, and if we focus on the security environment, what type of environment virtually almost overnight changed from pre-COVID pandemic to then, of course, the lockdown. Um, and, and of course, everybody knows then the, the, the vast swing from people working in the office uh, or, or on site to, of course, the very, very significant majority of people now suddenly needing to work from home. That's a type of event that so many, in fact, I would go as far as saying the very significant majority of organizations just never comprehended. Yes, they'd, they'd probably comp- comprehended in their sort of disaster planning that they might lose a, a, a particular office, for example, but never to the extent that effectively the entire workforce would no, no, no longer be able to mobilize in, in their normal capacity in the office or, as I say, customer on-site, this type of thing. So the very, very first thing we see that, that organizations have to deal with, and they're just not equipped to deal with, is the fact they need that workforce working from home and the type of then uh, VPN requirement for so many individuals to now be able to connect into into the you know the group domains. Um, the very first thing we saw was of course the the, the, the the CPU capability just just couldn't deal with that demand. 
Um, and so organizations were faced with an immediate decision of, do we, um, how do we create that extra bandwidth in CPU activity um, to accommodate the, the workforce VPNing into, into work domains? What, what have we got to do to free up that capacity? And the very first thing, of course, we see are things like firewalls being turned off. Before we even get into um, the actual endpoint devices that, that, that the workforce is using, is it a work-issued um, device? Is it, a, is it a personal laptop that they're being forced to use from home? Is it a private phone? Is it a work phone? Before we even get into the security dynamics of that, we're actually dealing with the fact that the entire security infrastructure, where you've turned off a firewall, has, has entirely changed you know, the, the potential vulnerability that the organization now faces um, knowing that the attackers, um, threat actors are seeing all of this out there and are very, very quickly going to jump on that and exploit it. So, you know, there's no one thing that we can particularly point to that says what did um, or what has COVID done in terms of creating the biggest, you know, security worry. Um, it introduces such a substantive factor of of uncontemplated situations that the very significant majority of organizations were literally running around thinking on their feet. It's almost a, an open field for a threat actor to begin, to begin to actually identify, well, you know, what is my threat vector, you know, or my attack vector actually going to look like? Um, do I, do I uh, go in tune with what we know is the underlying success rate of the likes of phishing campaigns? Um, do I actually you know, need to stick to that? Um, or is the actual security infrastructure so weak that actually I can go a more direct route? You know, if we just focus on that topic of, of really phishing campaigns and how ultimately that usually results in the release of, uh, of a package containing malware, ransomware, these type of things. Um, you know, one of the things I haven't even mentioned, um, but is, is again a very fundamental element here, is the psychological change of an employee when they're a in this very worrying environment, but what their security psyche becomes now that they're completely working at home and are maybe not used to working from home. And the very first thing we see there is. In a, in a security psyche, they act very, very differently when they're in the when they're at home than actually what their security psyche was when they were in the office, and and we focus again on on the likes of phishing campaigns. Um, you know, we know that there was a simulated exercise conducted in um, in March with sixteen thousand people, and the the whole difference in in the click rate. Um, was so substantively different than, than before COVID. Now, is that because of distractions like family? Is it, is it uh, the, the, the children that may be running around that, that, that people are trying to, uh, to actually deal with at the same time that they're trying to work? Is it, is it the stress? Um, is it not knowing really how, um, how working from home works properly and the security dynamics that surround that? Well, probably the answer to that is is all of it, all of the above. But what the the threat actors will see is there is suddenly a very, very different and far more successful potential 
from from undertaking fishing campaigns in this new in this new environment. So, um, no, I think the, the you know do I go a direct route? But if actually something so simple as it, as, as as the fishing campaigns are becoming even more successful, I don't really, I don't really need to change things. But one thing we did see, which was was very interesting, was that some fishing campaigns became far, far more tailored and sophisticated. In a number of cases, we saw um, a human element being introduced to, to, to the fishing campaign, where somebody would receive an email, um, but then presumably through pre-reconnaissance, contact details for a particular individual would have been, tamed, would have been obtained. And that in- individual then receives a phone call. And it's somebody saying, I've sent you an email. It's very clever. It's very um, relevant to what that individual does and to that organization. But that individual is saying, look, I've sent you something. Um, I, I've had problems with, with people trying to open this, but um, it, it, you know, this is a really important topic. And I, I just wanted to, whilst you're here, could you try and open that document? And, um, and we can then go through actually some of the particular issues you know, that, that are really rather urgent. And that's what individuals are, are not expecting in the more, more sort of modern fishing campaigns, is having somebody ask you to do that. And of course, what were they doing? They would see that they've got that email, um, and they would, while the person was on the phone, they would click on it. Either the attachment would be very convincing if it opened up and, was, and you could logically see it, but in a number of occasions, it was just gibberish. And the person would go, oh, this is the problem I had before. Leave it with me and I'll come back to you. But the package has then been deployed and the malware and the ransomware is then doing, doing its thing. So were organizations consciously relaxing security or was it a byproduct of the urgency of trying to keep the, the operations working? We have to introduce here quite a, an emotive topic, which is which is budget and, and the availability of money. Um, we know that, of course, uh, security budgets um, have suffered over the years in, in, in certain organizations. Um, or, or at the very least, been very difficult to to gain any degree of substantive increase in capital that's available to undertake uh, ch- the changes that are needed within the security environment. And you know, the critical thing here, we know, of course, the pace of the of the environment uh, and uh, the pace of change is just accelerating. It's getting quicker and quicker and quicker. And the success of an organisation in being able to deal with the, the prevalent type of vulnerabilities or threats um, that, 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 that you're facing right now is your ability to, A, have that threat intelligence feed coming into you, but then to actually be able to react to it and make those changes. And when you're having to change that much quicker, and, and, and in certain cases, and as we've seen through COVID, you need to change substantively, the money just isn't there. The budgets just are not there. Um, and in fact, there was a, 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 a survey undertaken quite recently that asked CISOs, um, as we're beginning to work our way through this, this, this COVID period, what's happened to your budget? Have you seen a substantial increase in the availability of funds so that the organization can make its security posture fit for purpose? And I don't think it's probably too much of a surprise 
to say the overwhelming minority said, yes, we've, we've basically had the board say, what do you need and we'll give it to you. But in the very significant majority, um, it's, it's really, you've either got to stick with what you've got or we might give you a little bit more, but the financial impact that the organization is facing from COVID means we're not in a position to really give you any substantive increase. And so, again, you've got a nirvana situation as far as a threat actor is concerned, where you know a wonderful situation as far as they're concerned has been introduced, and the financial impact has of of, of the overall um, you know COVID environment or COVID COVID period has meant the funds aren't there to address the real fundamental issues that are creating those vulnerabilities that threat actors are then exploiting. Now, have we seen? a significant increase in attacks because it appears looking at the research and looking at what's in at least being reported that as yet there hasn't been a significant attack in the sense of for example wanna cry a few years ago we've not seen one of those big red flag incidents as yet why do you think that is the first point is um, you know, I run the incident response operations for Verizon uh, in the EMEA region, um, and I have forensics teams which are, of course, dealing with the day-to-day of, of what we see as, as incidents from our customers. Um, and I'm also part of our global leadership, so I get to see what the overall global picture looks like. And I think the first statement is, I don't think that there's any doubt in my mind based on what pure activity we see in our day-to-day activities is there is an increase. Um, But I think there is also a second part to this, which is a a good news factor. Um, And again, we we picked it up this year in the actual DBIR, which has helped organizations in the COVID period, um, which is quite an astonishing change over the last 12 months of how quick organizations are to be able to detect um, an incident, a security incident, react to it with, of course, the primary focus and objective being containment and ultimate mitigation of that. And the DBIR showed us that in the last 12 months, there's been this unbelievable swing from taking months or more to generally under uh, to detect and react to incidents to days or less. And then in quite a few occasions, hours. And so whilst we're seeing, I don't think there's any question we've seen, you know, an, an, a, a substantive increase in certain, um, in certain cases of the type of um, cases of malware, ransomware, um, but also the new type of ransom, ransom DOS um, denial of service. Type, uh, type activities we're now seeing much, much more prevalent through through the COVID period. But that because, whether you call it fortunate, um, is that organizations have been maturing their instant response posture, They're the greater degree of creation of security operation commands, SOCs, um, SEAMs, whether they're in-house or managed, CSERT, emergency response teams, um, to the point where all of this, um, and if you, you know, and if, if organisations have, have, have been looking at um, uh, uh, EDI, uh, you know, uh, endpoint detection and response or network detection and response, but again, we've seen quite a lot of maturing in that direction. Then organisations have been far better positioned 
to actually begin to deal with these incidents. So I think if we'd seen this type of COVID pandemic 12 to 24 months ago, um, the actual impact of the increase in the number of incidents we've been seeing would have been dynamically different, dynamically worse for organizations. Um, so organizations have been far better at being able to detect that something has been incoming um, and hopefully be able to, to contain that security incident to a point before uh, some sort of breach or exfiltration has actually occurred. When it comes to the way organizations are processing data at the moment, though, are we seeing more risk there, particularly because of the need to move information out of back office systems, out of corporate systems and onto personal devices, which which are at home? And a lot of organizations have been forced to use mobile equipment simply because that's what they had available. This is probably where some organizations where they have had a reasonable element of the um, uh, of, of their workforce working in some form of capacity remotely, um, then they've been relatively well equipped, and we've, you know, we've seen, um, the, you know, the, the appropriate type of encrypted um, applications being used um, on corporate devices, be it a phone or or actually being at a laptop. Um, that 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 management of the data, both whilst um, in storage at either uh, you know centrally. Um, or actually on the device or whilst in transit, you know, those organizations that have, that have been through that, you know, were able to deal with this and, do it and, and deal with it very, very well. Um, for those organizations that weren't ready for that, and um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when you've got an employee using their home laptop, you know, that, that the kids use and partners use for, you know, whatever activity they're doing at home and all their personal phones, you know, we don't see those encrypted VPN applications, which is making, you know, the storage and the in-transit of that data secure. Um, and again, you know, one of the things, you know, that threat actors have been able to exploit is, is of course, breaching a home hub and of course, where a device is being therefore used that hasn't got that in encryption application, then the vulnerability, you know, the, the, the data is vulnerable. Um, and, you know, the individual and all the company, you know, are therefore susceptible to having that data intercepted in an unencrypted capacity and is effectively ready to use. So, you know, we, 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 we see examples of, of both organizations which are operating very safely but also those operate those those organisations which have suddenly needed to change and or try to change rapidly, um, and I think in the most case, you know, those that have had the most amount of work to do have got on with it, and and probably here sitting here and now, you know, several months on from from March, are are in a much better place. But the question is, how much damage has occurred? in that period that it took to get a relatively safe, secure posture. Well, that's the question, isn't it? Have we been storing up problems for the future? And it may be that although organisations have been able to defend themselves against attacks so far, if people have started to use less secure technology, if they then move into an environment where they're back to, say, visiting clients, they're going to be using Wi-Fi hotspots, they might be exploitable 
you know, they might be open to other exploits that are out there, which may not affect them so much at home. But if they go back into say, commuting or returning to the workplace, visiting clients, international travel, they're opening up a whole category of risk, which perhaps organisations didn't need to or couldn't afford to consider back in March, but they do need to think about now. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I don't think there's any question in my mind that we are over a period of the next year plus, we will begin to see organizations that haven't found yet that there has been some form of security incident and or most likely um, exfiltration and breach. Um, whether that's because employees um, in their, their different psychological state have accidentally and inadvertently um, done the things we see of send emails to the wrong people with, with attachments that, that, that are confidential, albeit that you know, the threat actors have been able to uh, gain some form of foothold bid on a device or, or even within the organization's networking domain, um, and that exfiltration has occurred, but that their security resilience was, has not actually been sufficient at this stage. To, um, to detect that, 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 that those breaches have actually occurred. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's the position we've seen so much in the past where organizations go, we think we're safe. We haven't seen any indicators of compromise. Yeah, but if you haven't got a SOC and you know, you're seeing, or you haven't got something that's particularly sophisticated, until you create that, you're not going to know. Um, so I definitely think we're going to be seeing organizations um, finding incidents, which of course, under the likes of GDPR and mandatory reporting, you know, are going to require them to 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 notify them um, to authorities. So it's just a matter of time of how long it's going to take to begin to pick those up. But I think you're absolutely right. Organisations, having gone through the COVID period, almost have no alternative now if they haven't done this previously. They're now saying they have to do this. They have to contemplate that rem remote working dynamic, be it from the CPU bandwidth to ensure that they can cope with the level of, 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 of employees that are doing this, or from just a, a pure security um, uh, posture, which is to be safe, you have to actually mature. So should we be moving now into a second phase of starting to analyse which steps were taken during the start of the pandemic, uh, which technologies may need to be replaced, which technologies need to be secured, uh, for example, by implementing encryption within them, uh, and which maybe are, are still fit for purpose. So perhaps triaging what you've done into categories so you can form a plan and say, OK, these are the priority things that need to be fixed now. These are the things that may require some more strategic investment. And actually, there may be some things in here that we need to now turn off. Purely from what, what the customers that we're working with talking to, um, there, there's no question, there is a major shift now of organizations who have been in a, what I would call emergency mode to have, um, to have taken whatever immediate actions were necessary to, to create a secure posture, um, given what's happening with the workforce. Um, and let's not forget the dynamics of the business, because so much of trade now in industry and commerce has been forced into a, a digital dynamic. We're never going to go back to where we were very clearly. 
organizations have gone through an emergency position of, you know, um, making sure everything is, is, is as safe as they can make it given the time and, and the money that they've got, you know, right away. But there's no question, you know, we are looking at work and working with organizations, you know, on two, three plus year roadmaps now that are looking at, okay, what are the things that, you know, we've, 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 we've battened up everything to, to try to make it secure now, but, but what's our, what's our longer, um, longer plan here for continued and better assurance over, over, over security. And, Again, that comes back to the budgetary dynamics that we talked about earlier. Are the funds there to be able to do that? Not every organization is going to be able to do everything all at once, either from a cost or a resource perspective. Um, so no question, you know, organizations are now, phase two, are saying, right, you know, emergency elements tick, but what are the longer term implications of this? And I think what it's brought to the surface is, is something, again, we saw in the DBIR, which is um, one in five of breaches, um, the proximate cause was deemed to be um, some form of error, misconfiguration error. And it's been creeping up over about the last four or five years to a point where it is one in five, where you know, with the level of the likes of digital transformation that we're beginning to see an acceleration of that due to uh, the need to be able to operate online, um, you know, there, there's a realization that that new infrastructure, digital infrastructure, has still got to work with quite a bit of the existing legacy infrastructure within organizations. And, and the gaps between those two haven't necessarily been fully thought through. Um, and that's where we see quite a significant number of vulnerabilities, but also the initial configuration of new infrastructure of how it's working with existing hasn't properly been gone through. And so an, an, a number of these now intermediate phase two is looking at how do you make the overall estate far more safe. Um, another point we haven't even touched on yet is, is, is really asset management. Um, you know, we're, we're you know with the hundreds and hundreds of, of of patching that needs to take place within organisations. Um, in a lot of cases, more frequently, um, what we're what we're actually seeing is um, poor asset management as digital transformation has occurred. New laptops, new devices, new tablets, all these sort of things that are actually being issued within organisations. Keeping those and keeping tight the asset management of all of that to ensure that the patching requirements of everything is actually being undertaken um, is a challenge. It's a very serious challenge. And where we see exploitation due to lack of patching occurring, we generally find it's because there was poor asset management. And if we don't do that, then we're storing up problems for later on because those devices may may not be vulnerable now, especially if they're relatively new, but they will be vulnerable in, in 6, 12, 18 months' time. But have we learned anything particularly about... Have we learned anything during the last few months about resilience? And have we have we succeeded in creating more resilient organisations, uh, some of the security and data risks notwithstanding? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I could be a bit contentious here and actually say if, if an organisation isn't thoroughly looking at its overall security resilience, 
And by that, of course, we're talking about adding in the risk management dynamics, the government dynamics, the learning and evolving, um, all of this. Then, um, well, then you're a blind organisation. You, you, if you if you cannot see how vital this type of um, review and change, then you know you're an ostrich sticking your head in the sand, and you're just waiting for the incidents to either come along or face the facts that they have already occurred and you just don't even know about them. So many organizations still don't do this. They think they're dealing with threat information properly, but they really aren't. And I think that's where we're going to see coming out of the COVID period, a lot of organizations beginning to understand how necessary it is to understand the landscape, how they match that landscape in terms of fitness for purpose, and more importantly, what have they then got to do rapidly to actually you know, improve that security posture to a point where they can handle those type of threats. Verizon's Philip Larby on why security has to start with an organisation understanding its assets, its data and its network, and then taking practical steps to improve their security. Our next instalment in this series will be on Tuesday, October the 6th, when we'll look at the security impact of the pandemic from a company's point of view. Our guest is Paolo Passeri, Cyber Intelligence Principal at cloud provider Netscope. That, though, is all for this week's episode. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and on iTunes and Google Podcasts. I hope you'll join us in two weeks' time. And meanwhile, thank you for listening.